There's a little phrase that's very commonly used today. It can be used in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's used in a sort of playful way. So for instance, if my wife Brandy came into the living room and instead of me being seated there with a plate and a single brownie, she notices that I sit there with the entire platter of brownies, clearly intending to eat them all. She might look at me with a sort of knowing glance and I might use this phrase. Or when our kids come home to visit at Christmas and I have an office at home and if they walked in and saw me in my office, but notice how my office, which can often be a little bit messy, piles of books everywhere, things all over the place. They might sort of raise their eyebrow as they look into my office. And I might then sort of smile back and use this phrase. At other times, though, it's not being used in a playful way at all. In fact, it's commonly used when some people or a person in our life thinks that something we're doing is not good or not right, or maybe even something we're doing in our life is sinful. And we might use this phrase to basically end the conversation, to put the other person on the defensive. This phrase used here is sort of the ultimate mic drop. What's the phrase? Don't judge. Or who are you to judge or judge not? So my kids walk in, they see my office, they raise their eyebrow, and I sort of jokingly say, you know, don't judge. You're caught in sin. Someone approaches you, seeks to speak with you about it. And then we say, who are you to judge? Judge not, Jesus said, we say. It's a very commonly used phrase. In fact, today in the world, it's probably the best known verse in the Bible. Many people who've never even been to church know that Jesus said, judge not. So, so often people use this phrase, Christians and non-Christians alike. But of course, the question is, what did Jesus mean by that? What is the right use of the term? How is it helpful and good? And that's what we're going to explore together this morning so if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 7. Today we're in Matthew 7. You can find it in the Bibles near you on page 812. Page 812. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app. Just so you can see the text in front of you today. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 7. Smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 1. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. There's a table at the back of the room. There's a stack of Bibles, a sign there that says free Bibles. So please, following the service, swing by, just grab one of those Bibles and take it with you today as our gift. So Matthew 7, the words of Jesus, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use... It will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Live from the heart with a humble awareness of your sin and with care and discernment toward others. Live from the heart with a humble awareness of your own sin and with care and discernment towards others. And we'll look at our text in these two parts. First, reject hypocritical condemnation. And then second, practice careful discernment. And just sort of a heads up, the first one will take the majority of our time, so you don't despair when 3.1, point two will be much shorter than point one. So first, we see reject hypocritical condemnation. And we see this in verses one through five. If you've been with us, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We're, we're nearing the end of it. And throughout, we've said that Jesus, the King, has come. And now he's describing what life in his kingdom is like. Those who come to follow him as King, to know his grace and his mercy, his salvation, are to live differently. And so here he's portraying what that life looks like. Not saying live like this in order to earn your way into the kingdom, but when you are brought in by grace, now live from that grace differently today in the world. So Jesus begins verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Of course, the question is, what does Jesus mean by judge here? The sense of the word is something like to harshly condemn another. Or to take on the posture of God in condemning another. Or to have a critical spirit towards another. Commentator J.C. Ryle says it this way. What our Lord means to condemn is a fault-finding spirit. A readiness to blame others' trifling offenses or matters of indifference. A habit of passing rash and hasty judgments. A disposition to magnify the errors, the infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. So what Jesus is saying is, don't take on the posture of God in condemning another. Don't have a critical spirit and judge others unfairly. Let's drive home the seriousness of this. Notice what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it's a warning to us. Saying, do I want my life, my sin judged, measured in the same way that I judge and measure others? Would I want to receive the same grace or the lack thereof that I extend to others in their sin? But I want God to relate to me like I relate to others. An important question, is Jesus here prohibiting any and all judgments that we might make? And for many today, that's how they read this text. This text, they would say, says, yes, there's no judgment we should ever make. And then they lead, read all of the scriptures through that lens. The problem is that reading lacks any sort of nuance or even understanding of the rest of Jesus' teachings. Even if we only confine ourselves to this sermon, 
Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Even if we confine ourselves only to this text, because we're going to see in verse 6 of this text that Christians are called to make discerning choices. There are choices to be made between good and wrong paths. Later on in the same chapter, chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, we'll be warned to discern who is a wolf and who is a sheep. So there will be discernments, choices, we could say judgments that will need to be made. And then throughout this entire sermon, Jesus has been painting a picture of this is the way to live, the right way to live, but he's also been calling us away from many sins that so often we give ourselves to. And so he's calling us to say that that not everything is right. Some things are good and right and godly, and some things are not. Author Jonathan Pennington helpfully says this, The point is not that all evaluations of others and situations must be avoided, but rather the disciples must evaluate and discern properly and fairly. That's what we're being called to, proper, fair judgments. So Jesus is not saying that there isn't a place in the life of a Christian or in the life of a local church where it is actually good and right and loving to address sin in the life of another. There's absolutely a need for that. But Jesus is saying that how we think about our own sin and how we think about the sins of others and the attitude we have in addressing them or thinking about addressing them is of great importance. So Jesus is calling his disciples, he's calling us to reject a particular attitude and outlook. We must not be marked by a judgmental spirit. We must not be lacking in mercy. God's people must not have a critical spirit towards others. We we are not to engage in bitter fault-finding in others. In order to drive home his point, to make sure that we remember this very important topic, Jesus uses what is intended to be an extraordinary exaggeration in an illustration. One of the more memorable illustrations I think that people think of in Jesus' teaching. Look down at verse 3 and 4. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Now, Jesus here clearly intends for his hearers, for us, to try to imagine this, to envision this scenario. So one of them, he says, has a log, a plank. You might imagine a a two-by-four board in his eye. And the other person has a a speck, maybe like a piece of sawdust in his eye. So those are two people, one with a log one with a plank. So both of them have something in their eye. And yet strangely in the illustration, the the one who has the log in his eye doesn't notice it. He's unaware or he ignores the fact he has a log in his eye, but, but he's quick to notice the small, tiny speck in the eye of another. And so he says to the other, hey, notice you've got something in your eye. Let me help you with that. So now imagine how this plays out. The the person with the log now tries to come to the person with the speck to try to. Now the person with the speck sees the log in the other person's eye and must be thinking, like, you're going to help me? I mean, yeah, my eye's a little irritated here. My eye's watering a little bit, but bro, you've got 
a tree in your eye, it seems. And now imagine they're coming towards with the log to try to help. And so you can imagine the person with the specs sort of like maybe like dodging and like ducking because it's, every time he moves, it's about to hit him in the head. And so that's what's playing out here. And it's intended to be humorous, ridiculous, to make this point. Because so often in areas that we do so naturally, kind of a direct address, we just ignore that. So Jesus sort of sneaks up on us with this humorous illustration to corner us, to cause us to consider which one are we, the one with the speck, the one with the log. Jesus is driving at our common temptation, the common temptation of every Christian to be able to ignore the sin in our own lives and notice so easily, so quickly, sin in the lives of others. Why is that? Why is it that we can so easily detect sin in others and we don't see the log in our own eye? It is because although Christians are sinners saved by grace, and thankfully God, by his grace, is changing us day by day, we still, in this life, struggle with sin, every one of us. And a core part of this struggle throughout life is pride. And pride, by its very nature, is always seeking to defend ourselves. It is self-protecting. And if I know I'm struggling with sin, the way that I often help and protect myself is not by addressing my own sin, but by diverting attention to the sin of others. Our tendency is to think the log in our own eye is only a speck. And to see the speck in others' eyes and think of it as a log. The fact is we all have the extraordinary capacity to minimize the significance of sin in our own lives, and to greatly exaggerate the significance, the magnitude of sin in the lives of others. But I wonder how this sometimes plays out in your life. Maybe just in the past week, you think of a coworker, a friend, a housemate, family member, your spouse, and you see, you saw so clearly in your mind at least, the log that you thought in their own eye, while denying the speck that's actually a log in your own. So Jesus says, verse 4, well, how can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? And obviously the answer is, you can't. It's impossible to do the delicate, careful work of removing a a little speck of sawdust from another's eye when you have a log in your own. I don't know if you ever played the the child's game Operation. I don't know if they still sell it or not, but it was this little little game. They do still sell it. It's been verified uh, by a child that they do uh, have the game. And and so you you reach down in these little places when you try to pull out a bone or you try to remove that. And if not, there was this horrible sort of buzz that went off. I don't know if you were very good at that. I was not. I was always horrible, could never move anything. That's why I could not become a doctor. The only thing I could do is become a pastor. So that's why I am, because I was no good at operation. Well, you certainly couldn't do that if you had a log in your eye. Right? You could not even get close in order to try to remove the log. And so Jesus is saying, well, of course, there's no way you can remove that when there's a log in your own eye. There is no way you can help. 
know, when we do this, what are we? Look at what Jesus says, verse 5. You hypocrites. That's what we are. That's what I am. That's what you are in those situations. When we have this sin in our own life, and we're focused, obsessed, eager to address the sin in someone else's life. What are we told to do instead? Verse 5, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the first regular practice of the Christian is to be a regular self-examination of our own eyes, of our own heart, of our own life. This morning, as you started the day, you probably, you know, staggered, made your way to uh, the bathroom to start the day, and you began to sort of pull yourself together. But a part of it, probably for most of us, was at some point sort of glancing into the mirror. It was a generally good practice throughout the week to, to occasionally at least glance into the mirror as we go out into public. So it is that we want to have a regular, honest self-evaluation. And if we have an accurate at all self-evaluation, we will regularly see sin in our own lives. Often it's a regular sin or two that we struggle with, sometimes new ones that we embrace as well. But friends, the Christian life is to be regularly marked by repentance. Daily, consistent examination and confession of that sin to God. And for the Christian, we will never in this life move beyond repentance. No matter how many years, decades you've been a Christian, you'll you'll never be like, I'm free of that. And the fact is, the more mature we come in faith, become in faith, actually, the greater awareness, the greater accuracy, the greater we see the depth of our sin than we did when we first started. So sometimes when we first become a Christian, we begin to see sins that are, that are just more obvious. So let's say that you, you flew off in rage at a coworker. That, that was sin. That's true. But often after time of being a Christian, you begin to see, yeah, I, I, I actually flew off in rage again, but not only do I have the sinful anger, but actually underneath it now I see the pride that drove the anger. So with maturity, we actually see greater depth. So friend, don't ever think that you'll be free of sin and certainly not free from the need of regular repentance. So I encourage you to cultivate a few moments each day to examine your heart, confess sin, repent. You might start your day with that. You might do it throughout the day as it comes to mind, and you might consider one of the last things at night as you lay in bed. Kind of think through the sins that come to mind and confess them right where you are. I'd also encourage you to, to take advantage of our regular rhythm here each Sunday morning as we confess sin to God, as we did a few moments ago. Fight the temptation, things that we regularly do, it's easy to just sort of go through the motions. So don't just go through the motions. When you have time to examine your own heart, do that. Confess sin to God. Find Sunday morning to be a, a, a refreshing place of repentance for you. Author Matt Smithhurst says it this way, Ultimately, only one thing can uproot hypocrisy, can replace a desire to criticize with an impulse to encourage, can slay a judgmental spirit, humility, which comes from the grace extended to us in Christ. 
So when you start to ascend the balcony of superiority, stop on the stairs. Remember who you are, sinning saint, traveling pilgrim, ongoing work. You have not yet arrived. Friends, that's true of all of us. We are saints, it is true by God's grace, but we are sinning saints. We've not yet arrived. So we're going to do our best to check our own eyes, to remove the log and the specks from our own eyes, and then and only then we can help others. And we do want to be careful that we don't misunderstand and misapply the text because Jesus does not say that we're never to try to help another person. He doesn't say in the text, focus only on your own eye. Remove the speck from your own eye. Don't worry about the specks in others. That's not what Jesus says. Instead, he says, first your own eye. But then he says, then. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is not a call to avoid helping a brother and sister with the sin in their own life, but, but it is a call to start with our own, to begin with self-examination and repentance and then move towards care with mercy of others. So we can imagine a path here of, of self-awareness that involves a self-examination, a, a humble repentance that then enables us to mercifully, generously, carefully engage to help others with their sin. Now, in order to regularly have eyes that are free of specks and logs, we will all need others to help us. It is certainly true that with self-examination, we can come clean on our own, but, but very often we'll need others to help us as well. So in our text, Jesus uses the language of brother in the text, referring to family relationships. So here he speaks to, to believers, people who are part of Jesus' kingdom, people who are part together of a local church. If you're writing the T today by yourself and, and you discover as you're writing along that you have something in your eye, well, you could ask the stranger next to you to help. Or he might offer, but that would probably be just a little bit awkward, right, for, for a stranger to try to help you get something out of your own eye. But if this afternoon you were riding the tea with a close friend and you had something in your eye and it was really painful, you might turn to a friend and say, hey, would you help me? This really hurts. So it is in the midst of committed community, in the midst of known relationships where we can best be served and serve. So friends, a very important question for every Christian would be, are you part of a local church in committed relationships where other people have access, where they can speak to the specks, the sin in your own life? And where you are willing, where you love them enough to do the same for them. And friends, for so many reasons, it is tremendously dangerous to try to go it alone without other Christians in your life in a local church. And one of those reasons is that if you have a speck in your eye, it can become so familiar that you even fail to realize that it's there. It just becomes normal to you. And you have no one in your life who loves you enough to even do the hard, awkward work of addressing the evident sin in your life. And friends, who's best suited to help another by removing a speck it is someone who's had some specks removed from their own eyes. 
And that, of course, would be any Christian with any time at all. But especially someone who remembers the pain of speck removal. If you remember how much the speck hurt, how much the removal hurt, that would be a person that when they come to help you, they're going to be more gentle, more merciful, more careful because they remember the pain of that. Friends, in the church, we, we are not perfect people. The church is not filled with people with blemish-free eyes. But we could say that the church should be people with actually a good amount of scars on our eyes. So we know the pain of watering eyes and swollen eyes. So actually when you think, who could help me most, don't go looking for someone with perfect eyes. But someone with some scars who knows the pain of removal, and they will be the one who can help you. Because that's what, by God's grace, we are to be together. People who still daily struggle with specks in our own eyes. We still have watering, painful eyes, but from that we're able to serve one another. Now, we want to be aware of a couple of different temptations that we'll face related to this. And one is for us to use this phrase, judge not that you be not judged, or to use the phrase towards others, who are you to judge? And friends, we'll be regularly tempted to use this phrase to keep people away when we are walking in an area of sin. When we're embracing a pattern of sin, and we probably know it, but we've probably decided, I want to walk in this sin. I'm trying to justify this sin, these choices in my life. And so then a friend in the church comes to you trying to care for you, ask you about this evident sin, this watering eye, this swollen eye, and they come to you and you say to them, who are you to judge? I mean, judge not. Don't be so judgmental. Friend, that will be a temptation to you and to me to use that as a means of defense, to try to make the other person seem to be intolerant for asking you, to try to hide in your own sin. Friend, let me urge you. Remove that from your arsenal. Don't use that to try to defend yourself, justify yourself, to try to keep walking in sin. A related temptation can be that when a brother or sister does come to help us, and they do try to come carefully to to help us remove the speck, they will always do it imperfectly. And so the temptation at that point can be to still divert attention from the speck in our eye to say, well, you just weren't very good at that. You could have done that better. You should have been more careful. You should have been more merciful. And it's true, we all can always seek to make progress. But we won't be helped by being overly critical of those who are trying to serve us. And then there's a temptation on the other side as well for many Christians, and that is for us to say, Who am I to judge? It's a very common temptation because no one wants to be thought of as judgmental. For for many of us, that's the worst thing that we could imagine, that someone else would think that we're judgmental. And so a, a brother or sister in the faith may be walking in sin, and it's evident, it's clear, this is contrary to God's word, but we think to ourselves, well, I mean, no one's perfect. I mean, who who am I to judge? 
I don't want to be judgmental, so, so who am I to judge? And we misapplied Jesus' words here. Because he does say, once we've been aware to remove the log from our own eye, then we are to help brothers and sisters. It may sound more loving to say, well, who am I to judge? But in fact, it is less loving. It is less caring. It may be easier for you, but you're actually not helping that person at all. Friend, if he has several specks in his eye and you know it and it's swollen and watering for some time, is it really loving to look the other way and say, well, but who am I? Who am I to judge? My friends, the reason that we can have any hope of accurate self-examination, any hope of repentance and grace without being crushed ourselves is because of and by the power of Jesus Christ. For he's the only one who walked the earth and never had a speck of sin in his own eye, much less a log. Never. So he has shown us the way, the, the perfect, sinless, righteous life. But not only that, he went, came to, to pay for all of my specks and yours, all of our logs, all of that on a tree on the cross. Jesus Christ went to take the judgment, the condemnation that you and I actually deserve that the justice of God would be carried out on Christ in our place so that through his death and resurrection, he would provide a way for all of our sins to be paid for, for us to be reconciled with God, to have new life in Christ, adopted into Christ's family, invited into the kingdom now with the hope of life eternal. And now this grace of Christ frees us to admit our own sin frees us to be honest. We don't have to hide in our sin because of what Christ has done for us. And so because of the Spirit in us, it is now possible for Christians to truly be salt and light. So instead of being prideful and hypocritical as we condemn one another, instead of raging against our brothers and sisters, instead of defensive avoidance, we can be a people who freely admit our own sin, repent of it, and seek to work for the good of others. We can be a people who are willing to even risk to care for, to address the specks in each other's eyes. So friend, what are the areas, the sins in your life that you're often prone to ignore? And what if you're honest might be the log in your eye today? What would it look like for you this week to cultivate a pattern of repentance, self-examination, acknowledgement of sin, and repentance. And friends, is there an area in your life where you're engaging in sin? Maybe you in some ways feel trapped by the sin. Or maybe if you're honest, you don't feel trapped by it. You actually are seeking to embrace an area of sin. You're right now, right now trying to decide, is Jesus' way best or is the way of this sin best? Because I think I'm going to embrace this sin. And in your embrace of the sin, are you trying to justify your sin or keep people at an arm's length by saying, who are you to judge? Has that become the sort of ultimate defense to keep brothers and sisters away from you? Friend, you see the emptiness of that, the destructive nature of that path. And friends, how can relationships in your life be helped if we follow Jesus' instructions here? 
with housemates, family members, with your spouse. These, these are helpful principles, even with someone in your life who's not a Christian, right? Even with coworkers, you'll be helped by looking at yourself first before you go to them. Does your heart more often lean towards a, a heart of mercy towards God's people or towards a critical judgmentalness? So we want to reject hypocritical condemnation. And then second, and then very briefly, we want to practice careful discernment. Practice careful discernment in verse 6. Look down at verse 6. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The fact is, this is a, a pretty difficult teaching from Jesus to try to discern what he's actually saying here. So he tells us there's something of great value, something that's even holy, and there's some who will reject it, destroy it, the dogs and the pigs. It seems that Jesus is urging his disciples then and now, he's urging us to exercise careful discernment as we're seeking to spread the good news of his kingdom to the world. So you see, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he's, he's announcing the kingdom. He trains up his disciples, and he, he starts sending them out and bringing them back as he trains them for the mission. Then after Jesus dies and is raised, he sends them out and all future disciples into this mission to the world. And we see that this gospel goes forward, the message of the kingdom goes forward, and many believe, but also most don't believe. Most refuse the message. And some, some smaller percentage of those who refuse, refuse in a really sort of settled, scoffing way. I mean, they don't not only reject the message, but in every way scoff and oppose it. John Stott says it this way, that this is referring to those who've had an ample opportunity to hear and receive the good news, but have decisively, even defiantly rejected it. And so Jesus is teaching us that there is a time in a few relationships when the disciples of Jesus have to make a discerning choice to move on in our sharing. We'll see this later in Matthew 10, 14, where the disciples are told in some situations to shake the dust from their feet in places where the message has been utterly rejected. So as you and I seek to share the good news of Jesus Christ... And we're to do that throughout our entire lives here. Many will reject the message. And yet we stay the course in sharing this good news. And we keep praying and we keep sharing. So many will not have any interest at all. But sometimes, in a few situations, in a few relationships, the wise choice will be not to keep sharing, but instead to step back for a bit, to pray to stop pressing and to be quiet for a time. Because sometimes in some relationships where people have already rejected the gospel, if we just keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, sometimes we unintentionally harden them more and more to the gospel. D.A. Carson helpfully says this, this injunction from the Lord Jesus himself is set in a broader context which demands love for enemies, an equality of life characterized by perfect righteousness. 
In other words, the fact that Christians ought not to throw their pearls to dogs and pigs does not give them a license to be nasty and vindictive, still less to ignore all else that Jesus has taught. Moreover, there is no justification in this verse for neglecting all verbal witness on the grounds that there are only dogs and pigs out there. Many, if not most, thinking adults who've come to be sincere disciples of the Lord began this pilgrimage by balking, and not a few begin by mocking. So I want to be clear with what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there, there is a, a very small number that some of us may not face anyone like this in our entire lives. Some of us may, someone who's so settled and so defiant that Jesus is saying, stop trying to share, step back and pray and wait. And sometimes it is pray for someone else, that God would bring someone else perhaps to share, that they might be more open to than you. But friends, let's hear it clearly. This is a very, very small subset. Some of us may not face this at all. Be careful the temptation to say, oh, this actually gets me off the hook of trying to share the gospel. So I don't want to put, throw pearls before swine. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus clearly sends us all to go and tell and tell and keep going and keep persevering. And if you think about it, in your life, probably none of us in this room who are now Christians heard the gospel once and believed. That's not how it typically works. So often it takes repeated, often over years, so we as God's people and we as a church must exercise great patience and much perseverance and staying the course that we'd share the good news again and again. But there are some times, a very small number of times, we have to exercise careful discernment. Try to read the situation and understand what is best and actually even most loving to pause, to wait, pray for perhaps someone else to come and share. Friends, you see that Jesus desires for his church to be a different sort of family that resembles the beauty of his kingdom where we take our own sin seriously because Jesus takes it seriously. Where we know well the pain of our sin and we've had many painful logs and specks removed. And together we fight hypocrisy. We reject judgmentalism and we extend much mercy and grace and care and careful work as we help one another with the sin in our lives. For it is God's desire that we as a church will be a place marked by sinners who've tasted much grace and who show grace and kindness, patience, generosity, and care to one another. Let's pray for ourselves that that would be true in us. Let's pray for us as a church that that would mark our life together.